Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Paige Glotcher about her book, How the Suburbs Was Segregated, Developers in the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890-1960, published by, the, by Columbia University Press in 2020. Dr. Glotzer is an assistant professor of history and the John W. and John M. Brow Chair in the History of American Politics, Institutions, and Political Economy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. How the Suburbs Are Segregated examines the history surrounding how modern housing segregation was purposely planned out beginning at the turn of the 20th century. Looking at the intersection of transnational finance, suburb developers, and local, regional, and federal policymaking, Dr. Glatcher illustrates the myriad of people and institutions involved in simultaneously creating the idea of the modern suburb and racialized housing at the same time. Dr. Glatcher, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic and why it became something that you were interested in researching? It was partially an accident um, and partially the product of interest I'd had for a long time. I grew up in cities uh, and I always like to look around me and just wonder how did things get to be the way they are. Um, and one of those things included why why did it seem like neighborhoods were segregated? So the cities I grew up in seemed to always have neighborhoods that had one group of people, one race or ethnicity or another, but they never seemed to be really mixed. Uh, and I was wondering about that. And then I had a, a very kind of fortuitous moment when I came to graduate school in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University. They had just gotten uh, the records of a developer, the Roland Park Company, uh, into the special collections, and it was largely untouched. So I had never heard of this developer. Uh, I hadn't planned on studying suburbs at all. I was interested in cities. But as I looked through this collection, beginning in my very first year in my PhD program, it became clear to me that cities and suburbs had to be studied together. They were extremely, extremely intertwined. And I was really fascinated by some of the ways that I actually saw segregation playing out on the ground through these records. And when I realized that it was changing some of the ideas that I had, about the history of American housing and American cities and suburbs, I thought, I need to follow this thread. There's there's a project here. And I continue to dig deeper. And I always love being surprised by what I found. Yeah, and for myself, you know, it's a very kind of interesting topic, not so much because I study it myself, but because, you know, growing up where I did in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, is a very segregated city. And, you know, it has its own sort of long history with racial um, housing segregation and that, like, for example, the apartment complex that I grew up in, uh, we, there was a elementary school, maybe thousand feet down the road. You could have literally seen it from my back porch. And I didn't go to that elementary school because 
the school lines had not been changed since desegregation. Um, and so the way that, you know, entire neighborhoods and school zones operated was, you know, this very was a product of this very long history. And so I saw this book and I was like, oh, I have to pick this up. <laughs> Right, exactly. I, I actually went back after I started doing this project and started looking up the history of the neighborhood where I grew up. And I found out that it had a very long history of actually um, blockbusting, which is one of the things that I mentioned in the book, uh, white flight, racial violence, and also resistance to school integration. So I, I learned a lot more about why my childhood actually seemed to be the way it was only later after I started learning more about the history of housing segregation in general for the book. Um, and it was astounding to me. It made a lot of things um, make sense to me in ways I hadn't anticipated. And so how does your book contribute to our understanding of housing segregation? How does it contribute to the historiography surrounding this topic? I do a few things in the book that contribute to the historiography of housing segregation. Uh, the first is I, I try to change the periodization uh, of, of American suburbs. I think that there's a common misconception that American suburbs primarily grew after the Second World War. But what I do in the book is I actually trace the money and the people that founded some of the first segregated planned suburbs in the United States. And that actually took me back into the 19th century. So I started to look at the different connections between segregated suburbs, including post-war suburbs that people may be familiar with, and the far-flung places, um, also connections to Native American uh, genocide, to settler colonialism, to enslavement. And so this meant that for me, uh, when I was writing about suburbs, I was actually writing about a web of relationships that really embed American suburbs in a longer history of global segregation uh, and anti-Black racism. That's one thing. An another thing that I, I do uh, in the historiography is I try to actually look at how the term suburb was contested and changed over time because that was actually a terrain uh, in which developers gained power. Suburb didn't always have uh, the same meaning that perhaps people think of today. They didn't signify a certain type of house or a certain type of neighborhood. They really, in the 19th century, in the broadest sense, usually just meant periphery. And so I really look at how step-by-step -step, uh, developers, but also some related actors such as city planners, uh, investors, try to actually narrow that definition and then use it to profit uh, through advertising and through exclusion and through sales. Yeah, for me, I thought it was really interesting being able to go back that far um, and sort of chart this history because, you know, for myself, being someone who doesn't study this topic um, very much at all, I was very much in that sort of, you know, uh, group of people who would have just been like, oh, yeah, suburbs, racialization, you know, post-World War II, you know, latter half of the 20th century. And so seeing it go back that far is, is one, really interesting and then really insightful. Yes, thank you. I, I actually make a point of starting the book not with um, segregated, the actual segregated suburb itself, but I really try and look at the people who were on the land and, and what they were doing and pre-existing conditions, because I wanted to also disrupt this very common notion that suburbs were developed on empty land. 
In fact, that was an advertising tactic that British investors who financed segregated suburbs used to attract capital. So this idea that there was empty land and then white people were going to settle on it and then the property value would go up. Somehow that that actually became um, such common sense about how suburbs came to be that it made it into scholarly narratives too. So I also wanted to go back and show, in fact, there were things and there were people and vibrant communities that not only predated the segregated suburbs that I look at in Baltimore, but actually continued to influence the development of those suburbs uh, for decades to come. And so when speaking about, you know, the development of these suburbs and, you know, the sort of origins of this, and you had mentioned the Roland Park Company already. So what is the Roland Park Company? And why is it important to this uh, story that you're telling? Well, I think that it's um, uh, the Roland Park Company was a was a housing developer in Baltimore, uh, and they were in business from about 1890 to 1960. Uh, hence the the years on the title of my book, but. They did a few different things that actually make them very important for understanding the history of segregated suburbs. They developed one of the very first planned and segregated suburbs in the United States, which was Roland Park in Baltimore. And over time, that grew into a a district of about 2,500 acres. And that still actually really shapes Baltimore's geography today. But they were actually quite important uh, as a hinge for both this transnational story about international investment and a national policy story that culminated in such infamous practices as redlining. So the Roland Park Company was part of an early network of developers and realtors that attempted to experiment with segregation tactics on the ground day to day, standardize those practices by talking to each other and circulating ideas, and then through certain professional organizations that they helped to found. They became sources of expertise, self-styled sources of expertise that uh, federal policymakers then called on to write the rules during the Great Depression, World War II, and the post-war moment uh, for housing policy. So though the Roland Park Company itself was just one development company, uh, and in fact, they, they really were primarily based in Baltimore, their conversations, their personnel, uh, their money actually went all over the world and had these huge, huge consequences for the geography of segregation in the United States. Yeah, I think the transnational sort of angle that you have here showing, you know, how this is developing with British capital, what they're trying to do, how this affects it all is something that, you know, I feel a lot of people who are unfamiliar with this topic to begin with will be somewhat surprised. And even those who are familiar with it will be pretty surprised as well. It was by far the most surprising thing for me uh, when I when I began this project. I had never heard of British investment having any role in the creation of segregated suburbs in the United States. So I I had to do a lot of digging for it, uh, and this is what I think accounts for why it's not a well known. Uh, part of the story in that it was somewhat hidden in the records. Uh, On paper, the Roland Park Company seemed like a local company, but actually some of the American shareholders were managers for British 
confirmed. And so there's a really incomplete archival record, and it wasn't something that was heavily advertised. So I think it's still very difficult to get a sense of how widespread this phenomenon was. But what I'm concerned about was not necessarily getting the exact number of developments that were founded on British capital, but rather the power that that British capital helped developers to gain uh, and the platform that those developers were then able to carve out when they had that financing shaping their early decisions and their early access to resources. And so when starting to talk about how the Rowan Park Company you know, began planning out these suburbs, you begin with, you know, talking about sewers and sewage, which I think for some people, they might, you know, be like, okay, why start there? Um, But as you point out, this becomes not only a major sort of uh, point of contention in the area, um, a major sort of issue that the Rolling Park Company seeks to rectify or, you know, um, build itself. Um, but it becomes something that they advertise very much as well. So how do sewers um, play a part in the beginnings of all of this? Sewers actually are a microcosm of the entire trajectory of segregated suburbs. They actually pop up quite a lot in the book at different points because there's always some type of interplay between uh, environmental concerns and the way the Roland Park is thinking about Roland Park Company officials are treating race and racism. So the very first time I talk about sewers, <clears throat> excuse me, the very first time I talk about sewers is when the Roland Park Company, as one of their earliest decisions, runs a sewer pipe from uh, the development, which is on top of a hill, down through and underneath um, a pre-existing African-American community into a nearby river, polluting that community, destroying a water source, and making it dangerous for the uh, people in that community to go swimming. That's one of the very first acts that they do. And so I think that it sets a pattern that is immediately recognizable and something that's replicated throughout the history of segregated development, which is essentially taking a resource uh, and potentially gaining resources for, for that development while potentially destroying or compromising um, people in communities that are less powerful around them. Now, what I do after I talk about this initial, um, this initial sewer pipe that really sets the tone, that sets the relationship between Cross Keys, which is the name of this African-American community in Roland Park, I actually show how sewers become a sales point, um, but also become um, a way that the Roland Park Company gains access to municipal government. So for a sales point, there's a really big concern about health. Uh, that informs Roland Park Company's early advertising and also some of their early tools for segregation. <clears throat> so this concern about health is very much uh, one that comes with Baltimore and a lot of cities in the early 20th century, growing very rapidly. Populations are growing. Also, the industrial base of Baltimore was growing. And so there was a lot of conflation amongst especially wealthier 
native born white people in Baltimore that this dirt and smoke they were seeing from the factories also was um, coming coming in their general direction in the form of diseased bodies, especially non-white bodies, black bodies, immigrant bodies, um, in terms of polluted water that they, they didn't want to drink from or polluted air. Uh, and that most people still weren't quite sure, uh, average everyday people, quite sure about how diseases worked in the late 19th century. So ideas of separating oneself from this dirt and from, from these bodies, from these people who were different, uh, seemed to be a way of guaranteeing their health and safety and also their social status. Now, the, one of the British developer, uh, British financiers of the Roland Park Company specifically instructed the Roland Park Company officials in Baltimore to emphasize sewage and emphasize drainage as a main advertising point. This was actually one of the strongest interventions that the British investors had directly on the strategies the Roland Park Company used for development. And in Roland Park Company ads, you see this conflation between bodies and physical environmental conditions through the way they talk about sewers. They say that there are uh, essentially dirty people and dirty places. And Roland Park Company would be clean. It would be exclusive. It would be healthy. You would have only what they called desirable neighbors. So that sewers then become this really important way of understanding the earliest experimentations the Roland Park Company was conducting with what types of segregation would hold the most appeal for people who had potentially never lived in or even heard of the type of suburban community that they were developing. Now, what they do, um, they also hire a sanitary engineer. And this is something they do because they have all this British capital. They hire a sanitary engineer um, who had worked um, across the U.S. and also um, in U.S. imperial interests in the Caribbean. And he helped give them the language of their restrictive covenants. Uh, he specifically uh, gave them the languages of nuisances, which are uh, sets of what were defined as dangerous or toxic or noxious people or uses of property. And thanks to that language, that actually set the stage for probably one of the most infamous tools of housing segregation in the 20th century, which were restrictive covenants, which were contracts, legally enforceable contracts that could bar African-Americans in the case of Baltimore or other groups like um, like Mexicans in the Southwest or Asians in California based on the idea that they were dirty and diseased. Uh, and finally, after this, the Roland Park Company then actually worked with Baltimore City to leapfrog ahead in the city's plans to build sewer systems by taking resources and being able to supply plans and personnel to essentially build and expand their sewer systems, even at the cost of places in Baltimore that actually did have epidemics and did have a lot of health issues. So... Baltimore was building a sewer system. The Roland Park Company got the sewers first over places that actually needed it. So there were so many ways in which sewers can help us understand the variety of tactics that developers used to lay the foundations for not only housing segregation, but how developers started to access power and gain resources and preferential treatment in cities. Yeah, I mean the point of the point about sewers uh, throughout the whole book is just it's so interesting to me. I mean, 
I think for some people who are unfamiliar with, say, this time period, um, especially the earlier part of your book, you know, it's it's somewhat easy to forget that, you know, modern plumbing and everything like that and sewage didn't exactly exist. And so this sort of advertising of, you know, this sort of clean air, clean environment through, you know, a modern sewage system would have been, you know, a really big deal at the time. It would have been a really big deal, but even even the pre-existing uh, ways that, that sewage was handled in Baltimore had already been racialized. And I think that that, was, that actually made it somewhat uh, easier for the Roland Park Company to think of the, their actions with sewers as appealing in a local context. Um, and I think that local context is always really important for understanding what developers are doing, even if they made a national imprint. So prior to the Roland Park Company building sewers um, and the city of Baltimore building sewers, most of the sewage in Baltimore was, actually went into cesspools, so essentially pits underneath buildings. And the people who were in charge of cleaning those out were called night soil men. And very often, these were, these were African-Americans who were stigmatized for handling that type of stuff at night. And so there was already already a growing association between older forms of sewage disposal, uh, labor, uh, and labor conditions and race in Baltimore. So I think that in some ways the situation was ripe for a retooling uh, that perpetuated existing forms of white supremacy and adapted them into something new. And the Roland Park Company was really in a position to do that. And I know for myself, again, kind of going back to you know my own childhood and everything, kind of reading about how sewage became so important reminded me of you know, where I grew up, where I was, you know, spoke before about how, you know, this sort of segregated history of Roanoke dependent uh, kind of made the choice of where I was going to school. And I, gr- I grew up in a low income neighborhood in the ghetto and basically like 50 feet from my apartment building was a very large drainage ditch that would overflow with water and sewage and everything like that if it rained. Um, and I just think about the fact that, you know, based on how all of this is going, um, how this all this planning and everything is going out, how that affected, you know, where that drainage ditch was made whenever it, it was eventually made. Absolutely. I, I can't imagine some of the really wealthier uh, neighborhoods, um, maybe on the other end of the city, would have ever um, tolerated or been able to essentially allow that to continue. I imagine that they would have had an easier time reaching out to the powers that be to change something, even though the health effects, regardless of whether one's rich or poor, would be potentially equally risky. Absolutely. Yeah, and so going forward, how does the Roland Park Company sort of shift their tactics, evolve their tactics over time when it comes to um, racially segregating their neighborhoods? You kind of um, have some examples of how from their first neighborhoods to their second ones and so forth, they sort of evolve over time as they learn how to sort of, you know, get better at racially segregating people. For each iteration of the Roland Park Company's developments, they made exclusion uh, stricter. Uh, So the restrictive covenants got longer and longer and longer. Uh, They contained more clauses, sometimes even redundant clauses. 
Uh, and in fact, the Roland Park Company developed a very robust vetting system only over time. They didn't have that from the start. And so they multiplied their public facing tactics of exclusion, such as the way they plan their streets, the way they petitioned for city resources, but they also expanded their, their infrastructure and their tools for vetting just within the office. So they hired uh, a sales force that had a whole filing system that was built around exclusion. These were called the exclusion files. They were based on credit reports and credit reporting companies. So they took a cue from credit companies in order to evaluate and then actually document how they were going to exclude people day by day on the ground. So that's that type of infrastructure only reached its uh, full form in the 1920s, a good 30 years after the Roland Park Company started. There were a few reasons for this. And I think this is where you, uh, I start to look at the Roland Park Company's relationship to national networks of developers in that when the Roland Park Company began business in the 1890s, there weren't necessarily a lot of well-known uh, facets of what a planned suburb would be. So they had to work really hard to <clears throat> convince prospective buyers that signing on to a restrictive covenant would be a good idea, that living potentially far from their jobs would be a good idea. But by the time you get to the 1910s and 20s, this had been an increasingly well-established aspect of the housing market because of the work that that these plan uh, developers of planned communities, often white, often men, were doing. Um, now, this was also coupled with some massive demographic changes, such as the Great Migration, um, and also with World War One, and again the expansion of industry. So, there by the 1920s, they didn't have to necessarily work hard to prove that a planned segregated suburb had cachet. In fact, it, there was already kind of a common sense assumption amongst affluent white consumers by the 1920s that a planned segregated suburb would be the most desirable place to live. Um, so it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, if you will. And so it's, it's not always very easy to parse out that causality. But there's a very consistent trajectory of developers getting stricter and stricter and stricter, and also bolder about the sort of public-facing nature and explicit conversations about who is excluded. So I, I do track that. And that's why I, I frame it in the book as going from experimentation to standardization. And I think that that standardization is really there by the 1920s, when you can actually really document very, very wide uses of restrictive covenants, and also some of the first attempts within real estate professional associations to release standardized curriculum for how to develop neighborhoods and how to plan cities. Um, and also you can see uh, things such as conversations, um, professional conventions, magazines, uh, I said textbooks, all of which repeats over and over and over what seemed to be the quote unquote common wisdom of the leaders of the real estate industry who in the 1920s happened to be white developers of planned suburbs. And I think what's so important about you know, what you're saying here and in the book is just recognizing how much work went into, you know, creating this sort of common knowledge as your um, and common assumptions as you were just talking about that. This wasn't something that was, you know, necessarily fully formed, you know, in 1890 when your book begins and stuff, but that it took, 
you know, from the experimental phase to the standardization phase, it took work to get there and to sort of create this racial system. Yeah, developers had a huge, huge investment in white supremacy, um, and they never had a totalizing grasp on the housing market. There was always um, variation depending on local context. There were always ambiguities. Uh, I have cases of, of salesmen just lying to people when asked straight out if they were excluded based on race or ethnicity. So while this was, there was increasing public uh, knowledge of how the housing market was forming and how it worked, and there was also increasingly standard developer aspirations, there was always flexibility and there was always room for change. And while I talk primarily about developers, there were so many other players beyond the scope of the book that were also making a difference to how people lived and what they thought about housing and how they thought about things like citizenship, about race, and about municipal government. So that, that's where I, I say turn to also beyond my book. There is just so many avenues to go to get a bigger picture of how things were changing in the early 20th century in the United States. But for the purposes of my book, um, real estate developers played a huge role, but I think it's always apparent and I think they always knew that they never had all the control they wanted to have. And so they were always working on the assumptions of what if, what if we accidentally don't uh, vet a Jew and a Jew comes to live in our development? What if there are protests in our development? What if a renter happens to come into our development? So um, those conversations, I think, also speak to how they were always playing off concerns that, in fact, the things they were trying to create were malleable and were potentially subject to change. And you mentioned uh, just now, you know, a minute ago, the um, sort of in the standardization of all of this, you know, certain, you know, groups, realtor groups and everything that come about giving out material and everything like that to sort of, again, standardize all of this. And one of the groups that you uh, hone in on is the NAREB. And so what is that group and why is it important for sort of, you know, looking at the history of suburban segregation? Yes, uh, NARIB is the National Association of Real Estate Boards. They're still around today. Uh, today they're called the National Association of Realtors, and they're still based in Chicago, just like they were when they were founded in the early 20th century. Uh, they have a, a whole building just north of the loop with archives. Uh, and NARIB was, uh, was one of the first national associations uh, for real estate business people. So when they were formed, and I, I want to say about 1908, they admitted primarily white people, primarily men uh, in their early years. So immediately, attempts to professionalize real estate had these racial and gendered barriers to entry. And of course, that would then, because membership was going to be this sort of narrow subset of people, that meant that their decisions were also going to potentially come from their place as white men. Now, NARIB helped to essentially create these formalized channels for realtors to communicate with one another. So once NARIB was formed, somebody in California didn't have to potentially just hear by word of mouth that there was a developer in Baltimore that had some interesting restrictive covenants. In fact, once NARIB was formed, there would be potentially a magazine where there would be an advertisement for a developer. And so you can see it all across the country. So they, they formalize these channels. That 
allow developers to essentially start encoding some of their goals into a kind of institution. Um, and one of the things that a subset of these members wanted to do was professionalize real estate. This is where a fairly small handful of suburban developers actually gained these kind of leadership positions within NARAB because they led the charge to professionalize real estate. Um, and I know that uh, before I talk about this in my book, there were some other scholars who talked about real estate professionalization. Um, there's a great book, A Nation of Realtors, which talks about this. Um, also uh, an old one, The Rise of the Community Builders, which is a fantastic book. And what I do when I build on that literature is I look at how it was that professional the professionalization of real estate became intertwined with segregation, how restrictive covenants, for instance, uh, became endorsed by NARAB so that no matter what members personally thought about them or personally thought about integration or segregation, they became duty bound as members of this real estate association to actually use them if possible. And there were big incentives to remain a member of NARAB once NARAB was established. NARAB also worked with local and state governments to create real estate licensing laws. So even the exam uh, one took to become a realtor, no matter what type of realtor, whether it was a broker, a salesperson, a developer, it was going to reflect the standardization coming out of NARAB. So that's where NARAB's reach was really important and takes the book beyond any individual real estate company or realtor to show the system and the structures that started to form with housing segregation being foundational to all of them. Uh, and one of the big takeaways there too is that by the 1930s, this was considered to be the leading real estate professional association in the United States. And so any time a local policymaker or federal policymaker wanted any consultation, any advice on real estate, and they said, I want an expert, we need an expert to help with this, NARAB provided that. So everything kind of filtered through NARAB and then filtered out again creating this type of standardization that also did flatten the potential actual perspectives or even to some extent the practices of thousands and thousands of people across the country. And that's really important, again, for the direction housing policy took going into the Great Depression. And so speaking of you know, federal housing policy and how that develops, how, how does that develop you know, in interaction with groups like NARAB and, you know, by extension, you know, this longer history of like the Roland Park Company as well. How does, you know, the federal housing policy become segregated in and of itself as it's going and being developed? Yes. So the, the New Deal is uh, a big moment where federal housing policy is written and rewritten and rewritten. Uh, and that's also when NARAB at that point has essentially gained a bit of a monopoly on what counts as real estate professionalization. So in the 1930s, the housing industry and the construction industry essentially collapsed along with the rest of the economy. Um, but housing was a huge, had been a huge driver of the economy. In fact, one of the causes of the Great Depression was that a real estate bubble in the 1920s had burst after a hurricane in Florida. 
So even before the stock market crashed in 1929, the economy had actually been in a bit of a downturn because of real estate, because of this, the bursting real estate bubble. So because real estate was so, so central to the economy, it became one of the areas targeted for essentially federal attention in the New Deal when the priority amongst most New Deal policymakers was get the economy restarted by pumping federal funds into things that would create jobs and would also essentially salvage as much wealth as possible that was already kind of circulating. So because housing was going to be really crucial and because NARAM had done this work between 1908 and about the 1930s to assume this very central position, this meant that NARAB essentially functioned as both consults, but also as a lobbying organization to ensure that federal housing policy would be compatible with its interest. Now, it certainly wasn't the only organization that did this. Mortgage bankers um, also had a very similar trajectory to realtors. Um, labor unions also tried to lobby the federal government in certain ways too. Um, David Freund writes about the unequal success that uh, labor unions versus realtors had in actually physically securing an audience within Washington, D.C. So there is precedent. And by the time you get to federal policy surrounding housing, beginning with a series of national housing acts, NARAB essentially got to meet, got to lay out many of the points that were then adapted into policy. Now, like a lot of the New Deal, um, the New Deal was structured uh, in many ways around taking federal money and channeling it through um, local concerns, oftentimes through private businesses and contractors, but also through state and city agencies. So the New Deal was in some ways top down, but it wasn't as sort of top down, I think, as, as people believe it to be. There was a lot of working with business and working with local governments. So this actually gave realtors a chance to essentially use New Deal money and New Deal resources to actually help to shore up uh, various color lines, various racial boundaries that may have been in flux as far as they were concerned. So the New Deal moment actually became an opportunity for a lot of white supremacists to um, essentially create stronger and stronger and stronger racial boundaries, even if they were using new resources and new sources of money to do so. Now, in the book, I, I look at one project that actually involved a lot of different New Deal agencies that are not necessarily treated as ever working together. So public housing agencies, the redlining folks over at the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, Federal Housing Association, so on and so forth, they actually coordinated through local channels in Baltimore to help uh, essentially shore up a racial boundary line very close to Roland Park Company development uh, in a neighborhood called Waverly. And the way that they did this was justified by essentially trying to uphold, uh, uphold the... Mm, let me start again. It was justified by essentially saying that housing in the future, uh, in the future had to retain value. And the federal government was going to help uh, a whole coalition of local and city and private groups maintain property value. 
But here's the catch. By the 1930s, thanks to the work of realtors, though not exclusively the work of realtors, property value was very closely associated with race. And so the idea of property value going up or down was essentially also code for saying, what's the race of the inhabitants of this neighborhood in the present and in the future? Um, and so this was, in fact, how you can really see a lot of New Deal money being used and a lot of New Deal policy being written about cities. It was about trying to control for what was perceived to be racial change, either occurring then or potentially occurring in the future. Yeah, I think that point is is really interesting to think about in how they're sort of planning out, you know, not just, you know, trying to think, okay, how do we sort of keep or make these neighborhoods racially segregated? How do we make sure, you know, people don't move in that we don't want? But then sort of this long-term planning in terms of, as you said, you know, the value of land and what that means in a sort of racial code way um, and sort of that, that long-term planning, as you're saying there. It's, it's a really interesting way to think about, especially at this time, you know, where, you know, so much is in flux to begin with. Absolutely. And I think you make a great point, um, Derek, that so many things were in flux to begin with, and that was part of what animated this concern. So very much like in the earlier decades in the book, where um, the big demographic and, and kind of physical changes to cities helped to spur developers like the Roland Park Company to advertise in certain ways. I think that this was also, you see a parallel here, that during the New Deal, even going into World War II, there were such massive changes, economic, social, cultural, political, happening in cities that, again, you see this really strong imperative coming from people holding the purse strings to try and control for those changes in ways that would be financially uh, beneficial to them. And sort of going to the uh, end of your book where you end it, which is where most people would probably begin the story, um, the Cold War. How does the Cold War sort of change um, or morph suburban planning and racial segregation in suburbs? And how does something like, you know, the Roland Park Company fare during this time? There were some massive changes to the the geography of American housing after World War II. That also continues to come from federal funding and come from realtor input into federal housing policy. So after World War II, uh, there were a variety of extremely, extremely large uh, policies that helped to incentivize who can live where. And the reason why this had to do with the Cold War is that some of this was then intertwined with notions of what American capitalism and democracy could be in contrast to the Soviet Union. Uh, And so what did American prosperity come to look like? How was it advertised? How was it written in the policy? Well, it was the suburban house. So after World War II, there were two major pieces of legislation that really helped to create that federal, that that post-war housing boom. Um, And both of them, though, had their roots in the segregation that developers had stuck practice decades earlier. The first was um, the underwriting of suburban mortgages, meaning that it was very easy for banks and developers, uh, construction companies to all essentially develop suburban housing and sell it to people. But the catch 
is that the criteria that they had to meet in federal housing policy looked exactly like the language of restrictive covenants. There was stuff about nuisances. There were direct clauses about race and property value. Um, there and so on and so forth. It's actually one of the things that I traced in the book how the language of this post-war housing policy is uncanny in a way, and that it's exactly, in some ways, exactly, almost word for word, like early restrictive covenants. This meant that huge swaths of the American population were excluded from gaining this easy access to the suburbs, which was then supposed to be the highlight of American prosperity and the American dream. Now, coupled with this was the other big piece of legislation that caused the suburban boom, which was uh, the GI Bill. Um, And it was a package of different types of benefits for returning veterans. Um, Usually those veterans were uh, defined in positions that men had, although some women were able to take advantage of it too. But again, the racial restrictions carried over into the Veterans Administration's GI Bill. So once again, all of the people who would potentially gain these easy, this easy access to the suburbs, to the jobs that the suburban, suburbanites would work, to the schools the suburbanites would attend, was closed off to people based on race. Now, the Cold War uh, put into overdrive uh, suburban development, and it did it in a couple of different ways. Uh, and But the important part here is that over the 19, the late 1940s and the 50s and into the 60s, uh, suburbs came to be the way that Americans were upwardly mobile. And it was one of the main ways that people came to accumulate wealth and accumulate also uh, social capital and political capital. Um, and if that was all based on race, it meant that the American dream, the Cold War version of the American dream, was from the outset for white people only. And it was for straight people only. Um, and it was for traditional families, quote unquote, only. So this is where the Cold War really runs headfirst into various overlapping notions of discrimination. Um, And one of the reasons why this also affected cities was because essentially thanks to these racial restrictions in the GI Bill, in the FHA, it meant that uh, not only were uh, people, white people, um, moving to the suburbs, It also meant that uh, essentially African-Americans and mainly African-Americans were unable to do that. And they were trapped uh, in cities that were increasingly not the place where people were putting resources into. So cities were essentially becoming sites of disinvestment um, and job loss and defunding of schools. Increase in funding of police. That was always that was always one that was sort of inversely uh, related to other services. Um, but you essentially created opportunities for some and not for others. Now the Cold War also created the military-industrial complex. Uh, so the places that had suburban development, like Silicon Valley um, and in California, were also getting flooded with military funding, which was creating all the jobs that were essentially contributing to a booming post-war economy. So jobs were suburban jobs. 
um, and also the highways that were being built during the Cold War, uh, especially after the interstate highway system was created in the 50s, not only linked uh, suburbs to these employment areas, but they were cutting right through cities and essentially destroying whole neighborhoods. Um, and so into the 60s, 70s, even to the 80s, you also see the destruction of city neighborhoods, often in the service of suburban towns and suburban employers. Yeah, I mean, all of that is sort of, you know, thinking about how that happens and, you know, the effects again makes me again think of my own um you know, childhood and where I grew up, I feel like, you know, it's just another because, you, you know, you speak about how this all becomes sort of national policy um, as again, like my my neighborhood must have also been affected by all of this, which, you know, to a certain extent I knew, but seeing the longer history is, you know, always interesting because, you know, you were just speaking about highways and everything. And there's a lot of interesting work about how interstates and the highways cut through, you know, both low income and sort of, you know, um, upwardly mobile black neighborhoods as a way of kind of, you know, pushing them back down and everything. And my neighborhood that, you know, sort of has fit the bill with all of this up to this point also has, you know, one of the city's, um, you know, major interstates cutting right next to it. You know, I grew up basically less than 50 feet away from a drainage ditch and less than 50 feet away from an interstate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I think you've also really raised a great point about how um, urban renewal and highway construction didn't just destroy um, neighborhoods and cities. I think you're absolutely right in that they often destroyed um, the centers of often um, black wealth in cities as well. They often went through commercial districts. Um, very vibrant commercial districts or entertainment districts or what would now be considered historic sites. Um, so the wholesale destruction of uh, neighborhoods was very often also the wholesale destruction of wealth um, and resources in those neighborhoods. And very often the displacement that resulted um, in terms of housing was in some ways irreparable. People did not recover and neighborhoods did not recover from having highways uh, run through them and having uh, whole blocks demolished, sometimes just for parking lots um, or an office building. So you're absolutely right in that there's always a class component as well mixed in with um, a, a racial component in that it was already very difficult. And historically, it's, very, it's been difficult to um, accumulate and retain wealth when there's so much structural discrimination um, in the United States. But even there, um, even what wealth was, um, was present was often destroyed through uh, the combination of federal policies, state policies, um, local policies that essentially channeled this renewal, quote unquote, money. Um, and even that name, right, renewal, what does it mean to renew, right? Why, why is there an assumption in the term urban renewal that an area was somehow bad and needed to be renewed? Right, that it needs to be brought back to some other point in time. This is, I think, one of the ways that, like, like with the word suburb, um, by thinking about the kind of language, the rhetoric used to implement and talk about these policies, you can also see a lot of the assumptions um, and a lot of the power that's behind them. 
And so, you know, we to finish things off, we have, you know, this great book in front of us. And, you know, I encourage all of our listeners to become readers and pick this up and go buy it. It's uh, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960 by Paige Glotzer. So we have this great book in front of us. Um, but what might we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? And I know this book just came out. So if you want to say I'm just taking a break, that is completely fine. Oh, I wish I was just taking a break, but I am actually starting a new project. Um, hopefully, if I can access the archives, I need to access. Things are a bit, uh, obviously, a bit challenging right now and unprecedented. But um, the project I'm hoping to start very soon is um, called, tentatively, Transnational Peripheries. So I'm very interested in how international coalitions of uh, developers and policymakers, potentially realtors, excuse me, how international coalitions of realtors, policymakers, um, and perhaps other people I'm not even familiar with yet, help to transform places um, in Latin America on the peripheries of major cities from uh, areas of extreme poverty to areas of extreme wealth. So for instance, why is it uh, on the periphery of Sao Paulo? There are shanty towns, but in the middle of shanty towns, there is a gated community where everyone has their own private helipad. So I'm really fascinated in kind of understanding how those places were made and how it was that they were essentially made and sold to locals. And yet the people behind them often seem to be working together um, from a variety of countries and backgrounds. So that's the story I want to tell. Um, and Brazil will be one of the places. Another place um, is Levittown, Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rico, of course, has a very different relationship to um, in terms of sovereignty than Brazil. But I'm I'm really fascinated by the fact that there's this place called Levittown, which is associated with American suburbs, and yet no one ever talks about the one in Puerto Rico. Why? So transnational peripheries. Let's see what happens. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I certainly did not know that Puerto Rico had a Levittown. Um, so I'm sure when that book. Um, eventually comes out. We'll have you right back onto the program to talk about it. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you very much. 